Well, let's seek God once again in prayer and ask for his blessing upon the ministry of his word tonight. So let's seek him in prayer. Our God, we have just sung asking for this blessed donation, the presence, the power, the active work of the Holy Spirit to rest upon this congregation, upon each one of us individually and us corporately. We cry out to you again and ask for that blessed, gracious presence of your Holy Spirit, that he would take the word of God and bring it home with power to every single heart and soul, that he would, through the word of God, exalt the Lord Jesus Christ tonight in our midst. Come, we pray, our God, and meet us in all of our felt need. In Jesus' name we ask these mercies. Amen. In Luke 13, I don't ask you to turn there, that won't be our focus this evening, but in Luke 13 in verses 1 through 4, we read about some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. The Lord Jesus Christ clearly knew about that event and then turned the attention of his hearers on that occasion to another current event. He then asked the people what they thought about the tragedy of the 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. He was not ignorant of current events. We are not to be ignorant of current events. And like the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not to be absorbed by current events which I fear sometimes some, even in our midst, may permit that to happen. But you see, the Lord was not ignorant of current events, but he was not consumed by them, not absorbed by them. He was not ignoring them, but he turned those current events into good use. He turned people's minds and hearts and attention away from the current events to what really matters, those realities of eternity. And so we are to turn our knowledge of current events into opportunities to take our hearts, turn our hearts and our minds to the truth of the Word of God. And so that's what I would like to do this evening. I would like to briefly discuss, first of all, the situation, then secondly, the solution, and then thirdly, the Savior. The situation, solution, Savior. First of all, this situation. The headlines in the news during this year have often been disheartening, disturbing, grievous, and vexing, especially to anyone who is a genuine Christian. Hypersensitivity and touchiness, impatience and annoyance, irritability and quick temper have all too frequently been manifested in the public arena from the local level all the way up to the highest places of government. Animosity, bitterness, hatred, murder have been expressed with both spoken and printed words, not only by public officials, but by the ordinary citizens of our country, by young and old, by male and female, by the rich and the poor, by the educated and the ignorant. 
Words of bitterness and hatred have frequently morphed into sinful actions of violence and murder. The sins of self have multiplied as swiftly as mold in the humid tropics of our world. Selfishness, self-centeredness, self-indulgence, self-love, and self-promotion are rampant in our society. So that's the situation, and probably none of that has surprised any of you, I'm sure. But that's the sad situation. But now, secondly, the solution. There are many things that genuine Christians can do in the light of this sad situation in our country at this time. Many of those things are good and helpful and right. For example, it is good and right to vote in the upcoming elections. However, the solution, the solution for all of our ills in our country and world is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I would not be surprised if there are some sitting here tonight who are thinking to themselves, Yes, that's true, but that's so simplistic. That's so naive. Well, if you're thinking that way, I would like to suggest you're thinking incorrectly. Or there may be some sincere Christians thinking, yes, I know that is true, but still, we need to be doing something else. We need to be doing more. We need to turn our country around. And again, I would say, yes, Do whatever legitimate good you can do as a Christian. I'm not saying don't do that. But let us not forget that there is an active evil being called the devil who insidiously works at distracting and diverting Christians from the true and lasting solution to our nation's woes. We must remember the words of the Apostle Paul, who, when writing to the Christians living in the pagan, corrupt, licentious, ungodly city of Rome, Paul declared plainly and boldly, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For therein, in the gospel, is revealed a righteousness of God from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. So let us not forget those words that Paul wrote to those Christians in that ungodly city of Rome. We are not unique in the world's history. Of course, there is much that is packed into that small and explosive word, gospel. It is powerful good news about the only Savior of sinners, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world to pardon and to cleanse and to deliver and transform sinners into his holy likeness. And when any sinner comes to the living Lord Jesus Christ, with all of his guilt, all of her guilt, all of his or her sins, all of the transgressions of God's holy laws, 
and casts himself or herself upon the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy, turning away from and abandoning all his sins, that one will receive from Jesus Christ, the living Savior, free forgiveness for all his sins. For the Lord and the Spirit of God will wash and sanctify and justify him freely and fully. That is the magnificent gospel of the word of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to be proclaimed to everyone throughout the entire world. It is to be proclaimed by our words and by our lives. For it is the one true solution to all of our nation's ills and the world's ills. So in a nutshell, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the solution. But now, in a focused way, thirdly, the Savior. If you are, as a Christian, to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to sinners in our society, by your words and by your life, then you must know and understand, grasp and experience the heart of the gospel. You must know it. You must understand it. You must grasp it. You must experience by the work of the Spirit the heart of the gospel. So what is at the heart of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is at the heart of God's gospel according to the Bible? It is the reality of love. Not mere sentimentality, certainly not lust and passion, but it is the reality of substantial, abiding, pure, sincere, sacrificial love. That is at the heart of the gospel. Consider just briefly these scriptures. Again, you don't need to turn to these scriptures. These scriptures that highlight just a few. The reality of love in the triune God and his gospel. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or 1 John 4, verse 10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. A third, spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You see that reality at the heart of the gospel is love, biblical love, God's love, the Lord Jesus Christ's love. And so tonight I would like to focus your attention and thinking upon another portion of scripture that also highlights the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. And it's probably not a passage you would typically turn to. I would like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. First Corinthians 13, 
And I will begin reading at verse 4. Love suffers long. Your Bible might say love is patient. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not vaunt itself. Love is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeks not its own, is not provoked, takes not account of evil. And there I will stop the reading of this portion. This passage, I'm sure most of you know this, but there might be some who do not realize this. This passage, 1 Corinthians 13, about love, was not written by Paul to be read at weddings. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading this passage of Scripture at weddings. But that was not Paul's purpose for writing these words. The Christians in the church in Corinth, Greece, were arguing with one another. They were separating themselves into factions within the church. They were going to courts of law against one another. They were not loving each other. And it was for those reasons that Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 13, and we do well to take heed to these truths and implement them in our hearts and lives and in our relationships with others within the church as well as within the world by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. These Holy Spirit-breathed words penned by the Apostle Paul also, however, perfectly exemplify, they perfectly demonstrate the Lord Jesus Christ's heart and life of love. So what I'm saying to you is when we read 1 Corinthians 13, its primary purpose by Paul, guided by the Spirit, was to help those Christians in Corinth to not be at one another's throats, but to love one another. It was not for weddings, but it's for people of God in churches like us. And so that is the primary purpose. But when you read this and when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ and his life, his words and all that he did, all that he continues to do, you realize that this passage about love shows us Christ himself and his love. And so I'd like you to see that, first of all, by looking at verse 4 and that little phrase, love suffers long. Or, again, your Bible may say, love is patient. Paul used a word here which describes how love acts. It's not about feelings in this case. It's about how love acts. Love suffers long. It does not have a short fuse. Probably have heard that before concerning this little phrase in verse 4. Love is not like a stick of dynamite that has a one millimeter fuse. No, love is not short fuse. 
love exercises forbearance when one is taken advantage of in a sinful way by another person, or when one is wronged by another person, or even when someone is wronged repeatedly by the same person. Love exercises forbearance. Instead of stewing and fuming inside, instead of lashing out with one's words and passions and even fists, love will patiently bear with the offending individual with a heart of earnest goodwill, a heart not of bitterness and animosity, a heart of earnest goodwill. Love is willing to take wrong without returning evil for evil. Consider how the Lord Jesus Christ exercised this patient, long-suffering love with his disciples when he was on earth. Remember when Peter asked the Lord, recorded in Matthew 18, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? He thought he was so noble. Peter clearly thought that he would be manifesting a magnanimous and long-suffering love if he were to forgive his brother on seven different occasions. But what did the Lord Jesus say to Peter at that time? He said to him, I do not say unto you until seven times, but until seventy times seven And stop and consider how marvelously patient the Lord was with Peter. The Lord was not irritated with Peter when he asked that question. The Lord loved Peter and the Lord persevered in his love for Peter, notwithstanding all of Peter's brashness and impetuosity. Or another situation, remember when Mary sat at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, spiritually hungry, yearning to learn from her master and his teaching. But Martha, on the same occasion in the house, was distracted with the burdens of hospitality, and she became very irritated with her sister Mary, and she then complained to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read about this in Luke chapter 10. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she came up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister did leave me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she come and help me. That's the quote from Luke 10. Did the Lord feel annoyance and irritation at Martha's crass, false accusation? The scriptures don't tell us, but the Lord's response revealed to us that he was not annoyed or irritated when she gave this accusation. Lord, don't you care? Just stop and think. That's what Martha was doing. She was falsely accusing the Lord Jesus of being insensitive to her needs. Don't you care? No, the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. You see and hear 
the Lord Jesus gracious, patient, loving response to Martha. He corrected her, but he didn't snap at her. He didn't get all upset when she basically told him what to do. Tell my sister to help me. You see, he responded with loving patience. And dear Christians sitting here tonight, how many times, how many times have you sinned against the Lord Jesus Christ during this past week? In your thoughts, in your heart, with your attitudes, with your words, with your behavior, with your reactions to others, how many times have you sinned against the Lord Jesus Christ this past week? Have you ever acted like Peter or Martha in your relationship to others or towards the Lord Jesus Christ in this past week? How has the Lord Jesus Christ treated you when you have returned to him confessed your sins, sought forgiveness and cleansing, has not the Lord Jesus Christ dealt patiently with you, forgiving you, bearing with you in all of your repeated sins and faults? Has not the Lord been gracious and kind? Has he ever retaliated in passion and anger and revenge for your numerous repeat offenses of sin? He hasn't, you see. We see here in 1 Corinthians 13, love suffers long. Love is patient. We see that exemplified in Jesus Christ. But secondly, love is kind. And with these words, Paul is not describing a passive characteristic of love. No, Paul is asserting that Christian love actively and practically demonstrates kindness as opposed to severity toward others, including one's enemies. And when I sat and listened to Pastor Carlson this morning, I said to myself, the messages dovetail together in God's sovereign providence we are to have kindness, not only towards our friends, but also towards even our enemies. In Matthew 5, verse 43, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for them that persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. As God is intentionally and mercifully kind to the evil and unjust, giving them the warmth and beauty and benefit of sunshine, giving them necessary rain for their lives, so you as a Christian are to be intentionally and mercifully kind to others, including those who are evil. And you see, if you are to do that, if you do do that, if I do that as a Christian, how radically different that is 
from what we are seeing much in the news. Where is the kindness of speech? Where is the kindness of attitude? Where is the kindness of behavior and reactions? There's nastiness and harshness and lovelessness, very, very different from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, as Christians, are to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Was not the Lord Jesus Christ loving and kind to Judas? He was. On the very night of his betrayal, he called him friend. That wasn't a mistake. That was sincere. That was true. Throughout the life of Judas, the Lord Jesus Christ showed sincere kindness to him. Even when the Lord knew, he did know, that Judas would one day betray him. Throughout his three years of public ministry, the Lord Jesus willingly gave his time, his instruction, his example, his affection, his kindness to Judas. But consider also, as far as the Lord's kindness, love is kind, consider the Lord's kindness towards Thomas, recorded in John chapter 20. There we read, The other disciples therefore said unto Thomas, We have seen the Lord, after the resurrection, of course. But Thomas said unto them, Except I shall see his hands, in his hands the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, I don't know if Thomas said it the way I just said it, but when you read it, he seems pretty strong in his view here. Except I shall see in his hands the print of his nails, the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It was a demonstration on Thomas's part, I believe, of brazen sinful unbelief as well as self centeredness. And then in John chapter 20 and verse 26, we read these words. After eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas was with them. Jesus comes, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be faithless, but believing. Do you hear the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ in those words to Thomas? He could have rightly, really strongly, sinlessly rebuked him, but he really expressed correction, and yes, a rebuke, but with words of kindness. He stooped to the needs of Thomas and his struggle with unbelief. And so he said, reach here your finger 
See my hands. Reach here your hand. Put it into my side. Don't be faithless but believing. You see, the Lord's spoken kindness to Thomas had a marvelous, sanctifying, transforming effect upon his mind and heart. Love is kind. We see that in the Lord Jesus Christ. But thirdly, from 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 5, just one little phrase. Love seeks not its own. Love seeks not its own. With these clear and succinct words, Paul instructs us that genuine Christian love is not focused upon self. Christian love is not to be selfish. It is not to be self-centered, self-serving, self-indulgent. The Son of God supremely manifested this aspect of love in his life, in his death, and continues to manifest this aspect of love even now in glory. He was never, he has never been, never was, never will be seeking his own. Think with me for a moment from the very point, as it were, in eternity past, as we say with our limited language, before the worlds were created, when the triune God was planning this work of salvation, from the time when the Son of God actually left the glories of heaven, he left the worship of angels, he left perfect purity and perfect joy in heaven, he left all of the glories of heaven and came into this world through the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he did that in order to become the unique God-man, the only Savior of sinners. And when he left those glories of heaven and came to this earth through the Virgin Mary's womb to become now for the first time the unique God-man, when he did that, you see, he was not seeking his own. He was not serving self. He was not selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent. In fact, he was totally self-denying. He willingly denied himself all of the privileges and perfections of heaven. And then when the Lord Jesus Christ nursed at the breast of his mother Mary... He was actually at that time upholding all things by the word of his power. How was he doing that? We do not know, but the scriptures teach that. He upholds all things by the word of his power, even as he was nursing at the breast of Mary. There he was, the God-man, nursing at the breast of a sinful creature. And what was he doing, you see? He was not seeking his own. He willingly made himself of no reputation. He was born in a barn, a smelly barn, with manure all around, with dirty straw in a trough for his cradle. The Creator 
the omnipotent one, was now dependent upon a sinful creature, and he willingly became a helpless baby in order to rescue sinful men, women, boys, and girls. He was not seeking his own, you see. And then growing up as a child in his home in Nazareth, the Lord Jesus, the scriptures teach us, had at least six younger siblings because we're given some of their names in Matthew 13. He had at least six younger siblings. And never once in that household, as he was growing up there, that home, never once did he grab a toy from one of his younger siblings. Never once did he get into an argument with one of his younger siblings. Never once did he get irritated when a younger sibling accused him falsely of doing something wrong. Never once, you see. Why did he do all of that, you see? He was not seeking his own. In his conversations with his siblings, in his actions and reactions growing up in that home in Nazareth, in his response to his sinful parents, who may have at times judged him wrongly, even though they knew he was not an ordinary child, knew he was indeed the Messiah, they may have judged him wrongly. But in all of that, you see, Jesus Christ the Lord denied himself his rights and prerogatives. He did not seek his own. Love does not seek its own. And then at the age of 12 in Luke 2, we're told that he was in the temple in Jerusalem and he was questioning with the, the, the teachers there in the temple, asking them questions, answering their questions. He had to learn his Hebrew alphabet. He had to use his mind to learn from the scriptures. He had to apply biblical truth to his own heart and life. Not because he was a sinner. He wasn't a sinner. Not because he had a sinful heart. He didn't have a sinful heart. But nevertheless, he had to learn the scriptures, apply them to his heart and life. Why did he do that? so that he could live a perfect, sinless life for all of his elect through all of the ages. And he did it in self-denying love. He didn't seek his own, you see. He was never seeking fame or prominence for himself. He was never seeking the praise of men. And then for three years, as he lived with his disciples, diligently instructing them in the word of God, patiently and graciously bearing with them in all of their idiosyncrasies, all of their faults, all of their sins. And when the disciples argued among themselves about who was to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the Lord did not express irritability toward them, he didn't scream at them and yell at them and say, how come you can't get this through your thick skulls? How many times have I told you this and that? Of course he didn't do that. Never once was he carnal. Never once was he sinful. Never once. And that wasn't because it was a piece of cake for the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think, well, he had no problem with this because, you know, he was truly God. Well, yes, he was truly God, but he was truly man, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. His resisting temptation was a vicious 
fight day by day. And why did he do it? Because he was not seeking his own. He was seeking you, dear Christian. He came into the world to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek his elect, to call them out of every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. He did not seek his own. And he was patient with his disciples, correcting them with his words, using object lessons. He was concerned for their practical and spiritual and eternal well-being. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus Christ again was not seeking his own. He was prostrate on the cold ground of that garden at night, praying and agonizing in prayer with his God and Father, and thinking about the prospect of receiving all of the sins of all of his elect from all of the ages, thinking about the prospect that God's wrath would be poured out upon him righteously, thinking about all of that, and it caused him to stagger, to be overwhelmed. But why did he persevere through that? Why did he persevere in prayer? Why did he persevere through the garden? Because he was not seeking his own. He understood in a way that you and I do not at this present time. And if you are a Christian, you never will understand it. He understood as the God-man, in a way that we do not, what it would be like to be the recipient of the holy, righteous, unmixed wrath of God. And in agony then he prayed that that awful reality would be taken from him if it was at all possible. But he prayed, not my will, but your will be accomplished. And why was the Lord willing to have the fury of God's wrath poured into his very soul? Why was he willing to have God's righteous indignation poured upon him? It was because he knew if he was to save his people, he must not think of himself. It wasn't, I need to think about number one. How is this going to really affect me? No, no, no. He was not thinking about himself. He was thinking about God's glory, God's honor, God's law, God's truth, God's way of salvation. He was thinking also about the people he would save. He was thinking of their everlasting good, and therefore, he said no to himself. He did not seek his own. And throughout the mockeries of the Lord's trial before the Jewish rulers and Pontius Pilate, he was always not seeking his own. And then, in his death upon the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his love for his people, did not seek his own. I said recently to one of my fellow pastors, 
You know, sometimes we say things as Christians and what we're saying, it's good, true, right, biblical, it's not wrong. But we say things like, you need to think of the cross of Jesus Christ. Think of the cross, preach the cross. That's true, that's good. What does that mean? There's not an easy answer. But it means taking biblical truth about the cross about the Lord Jesus Christ in the cross and applying it, according to the scriptures, to your own understanding, to your own heart and life. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ took all of the sins, as I've already said this evening, he took all of the sins of all of his elect from all of the ages Upon himself. He wasn't defiled by them. They did not defile him, but he took them to his account as though he had actually committed them. He didn't commit them, of course. He wasn't internally defiled, but he took all of those sins upon him and he stood in the place of every one of his people who will trust in him. And when he took all of those sins of all of his people upon himself, he knew that for them to be forgiven and pardoned and accepted by God, all of those sins must be righteously punished by God according to the law of God. He understood that, you see. And he understood, as I said earlier, he understood in ways we do not to some degree, and in one sense you say, well, how could it have only been to a degree? He was truly God. He was omniscient. Surely he fully comprehended what he would experience, and perhaps that is so. It is a mystery, you see. How does the God-man recoil from all of this, this thought of the wrath of God? You see, as he contemplated all of those realities, he knew that he would be, and indeed he was, plunged into total darkness, outer darkness, he experienced in reality separation from all that is good, separation from his God and heavenly Father. He experienced being forsaken by God his Father, totally abandoned. He experienced inexpressible anguish of soul and heart because he was receiving the righteous wrath of God punishment due to the sins of all of his people from all of the ages. And in that abandonment, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was abandoned, he was indeed loving his heavenly Father, and his heavenly Father was loving him, and he was manifesting this love for his elect. He wasn't seeking his own If he was, he would have never gone to the cross. But he went to the cross because he wasn't seeking his own, because he was seeking the salvation of his people whom he loved from eternity past. That is what happened on the cross. He wasn't seeking his own pleasure. He wasn't seeking his own good. He was seeking the eternal good 
and blessedness of his people. Well, how that compares to life in America? How different is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't seek his own, compared to what we have in our culture and society today? Everyone is seeking his own things, his own ways, his own rights. You see, I have my rights, and you better give me my rights. Why should I follow you? Why should I do this? Why should I do that? It is selfishness. We need to see how absolutely, hideously ugly the sin of selfishness is in our world and in our own hearts. And we need to see it against the backdrop of the selflessness and the love of Jesus Christ. He did not seek his own. And you, dear Christians, should praise and worship and love the Lord Jesus Christ for his love for you, that he did indeed not seek his own, that he is indeed still patient and kind with you. You should praise him, worship him, love him, and serve him. And you should indeed live in such a way that others around you will want to understand and know why you are living the way you are living. He that says he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. We should be patient and kind with others around us, with fellow Christians, with fellow sinners. We should be patient and kind. We should not be seeking our own because we want to be like Christ, live as he lived, and then be light and salt in this world, and then have opportunities to speak the gospel to others. And we should hate all sin in ourselves, and especially these sins of selfishness. Repent of our sins daily. Turn to Christ afresh daily. Trust in him only daily. And then, indeed, know the forgiveness of those sins, washing in his blood, fellowship with him, and then go forth living a life like the Lord Jesus Christ in our nation and world. Because that is what they need to see, and then they need to hear from us the gospel that Jesus Christ saves helpless, hell-deserving, vile sinners like me and like you. That's what he does. He still does it. So, brethren, in the light of our sad situation in our country and the world, remember that the solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then remember the Savior and live like the Savior and continue to trust and follow and obey and love the Savior. And when we do, indeed, May God bring his blessing and rip open the windows of heaven and pour out mercy and grace upon our needy, sinful country. Well, let's close in prayer. Lord, we ask 
that you would come and take your truth concerning your Son and write it upon our hearts and minds. And we pray that by your Spirit you would sanctify your people in the truth. Your word is truth. That you would make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ inwardly and outwardly. That we would manifest love toward one another in our homes, in the church, in our places of work, in the world about us, and manifest such Christian love not only to other Christians, but to sinners, and even to the vilest of sinners, that we may have opportunity to speak of the love of Jesus Christ for our souls, that we may be able to point them to Jesus Christ, that they would know the reality of deliverance from their bondage, their enslavement, to their sins, whatever those sins may be, especially the sins of hatred and animosity, bitterness and harshness and lovelessness. May sinners in our needy country find in the Lord Jesus Christ the reality of such love, love that is long-suffering and patient, love that is kind, love that does not seek its own, Come, O God, we pray, and work in our hearts, in our midst, and in our nation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.